begin. Welcome to Mass Ave. We're here bringing you conservative news, policy, and insight from the steps of Capitol Hill. I'm your host, Emily Vanderbush. I'm Tommy Binion. Welcome to today's episode. We have an interesting show lined up for y'all. Oh, it's going to be great. That interview, we, we just wrapped up an interview with Arthur Millick uh, on free speech on college campuses. It was awesome. Can't wait to play it for you. Um, it's not It's not what you're thinking. It's not the same reaction you get from you know talk radio hosts with the just total shock face because uh, free speech was denied on campus. Arthur really dives into what the mindset, what the ideology, what the dogma behind uh, the denial of free speech is on college campuses and why this is happening. It's fascinating. Can't wait to play it for you. Yeah, really excited for y'all to hear it. Uh, in the meantime, Tommy, what's going on in the rest of the world? Uh, well, um, this podcast is being recorded on Monday. Tonight, uh, the president is going to make a major announcement on primetime, mm-hmm. uh, one of the first uh, presidential national security announcements in prime time, I believe, since President Obama announced that we had killed Osama bin Laden. This is a big, big deal. Uh, They have reached a decision on what to do with our troop levels and our engagement in Afghanistan. Um, And he's going to talk about that tonight. Yeah. And if you all are interested in doing some background research on that, we actually recorded with Robin Simcox a couple weeks ago on Afghanistan and what the U.S.'s role should be. So definitely uh, listen back on that one and you'll get some of the heritage perspective on it. You know what else is going on today? The eclipse. What did the man on the moon? What? No, I messed that up. It's a great joke. Uh, How does the man on the moon cut his own hair? I don't know. Eclipse it. Well, <laughs> we're we're going to start mixing right. in a few dad jokes on Mass Ave, so you audience get get uh, get excited about that. Yeah, exciting stuff going on here at Mass Ave. Um, Eclipse it. it. That's great. I I hope somebody listened to this podcast in their car got a laugh out of that. Yeah, I'm sure they did or will. Uh, also tonight on primetime, uh, I think looks like after the president, um, Paul Ryan is doing a televised town hall. Promises to be fascinating. Um, They have some major deadlines in Congress coming up, appropriations, um, the debt ceiling, children's health insurance, FAA, uh, flood insurance. Uh, It's going to be a big September, and Paul Ryan's going to be talking about that tonight uh, in his town hall, I I think hopefully after the president's um, address. So we will – we we at Mass Ave will be awake to, to, to catch that as well. Yep, it's uh, it's August, which is usually a quiet week in DC, but it doesn't feel that quiet this this time. So not this August, yeah, no way, no it's how. Been, it's been pretty busy. Arthur Millick is the associate director of the Beacon Assignment Center for Principles and Politics here at the Heritage Foundation. Uh, Arthur has studied American political thought at both the University of Chicago and Emory University down in my hometown in Atlanta. Uh, he worked over uh, on the Hill, the Armed Services Committee, and at the Hudson Institute. Uh, here at Heritage, he studies um, principles and politics. Uh, he studies the First Amendment. He spends a lot of time thinking about American political thought, um, and that has brought him to uh, do a lot of thinking about the state of free speech on universities, why that is, um, and uh, and what we can do about it. Uh, clearly, uh, free speech on a college campus is not what it used to be. Um, you do not have an unequivocal right to free speech. You may be accused of triggering somebody, and you may be banished from a safe space. Uh, and so that's that's not free speech. That's not uh, what the founders intended 
uh, for nobody's ideas to be allowed to be challenged. And as Arthur puts it, uh, that's, that's not really how the universities were founded. So with that, let's roll the interview. Arthur, welcome to Mass Ave. Thanks for joining us. We're excited to have you on today. Um, it's back to school season, back to college campuses, and free speech on, cal- on college campuses is something that we hear a lot about. Um, I guess we first want to start or the, out... Or the lack thereof. Or the lack thereof, which is really the focus of today's interview. Uh, let's start with the purpose of what a university is and then why free speech is so necessary to it. Sure. So thanks for having me. Uh, Let's just take a step back and think through why we have universities at all. Uh, Universities presume that the world is accessible to the mind. Universals exist. A university is a universal place where all minds come to obtain knowledge. So knowledge comes in two forms. We today think that knowledge is only uh, found in the natural sciences, material facts. But when the universities were founded in Greece and as the universities were in existence up until maybe the 60s or so, it was believed that moral truths also were accessible by the human mind. And therefore, this is an institution that presumes something about a human being and something about the world he lives in. So all people come to universities to gain knowledge of the world, let's say broadly. And the freedom of speech is the most important aspect of that. If you discover something, on the way to discovery, there must be speech. One must be able to articulate the truths that one discovers. One must be able to rationally discuss the truths that one discovers. The problem with the universities today is that uh, there is a kind of subtle or tacit denial of what I just said. What they presume instead are a variety of other things. The first is that they presume that there's a distinction between facts and values. A fact, everybody can understand. But those facts are only material facts, the kinds of facts that are accessible in the natural sciences. Everything else, according to many in the universities, again, this is a reigning dogma, is a matter of a value. Now, values cannot be rationally defended. They are preferences. They are mere preferences that can't really be discovered by the mind, that are just imposed onto the world as a kind of desire. Once you get into that distinction, you say that there are no such things really as moral truths. And that undermines the reason for the university as a place of discovering what genuine knowledge is. Uh, The universities uh, today also presume other things about human beings that are antagonistic to freedom of speech. Uh, For example, they presume uh, that um, one's race fundamentally determines one's mind, that history somehow fundamentally determines one's mind, that even gender fundamentally determines one's mind. If that's the case, then we have nothing to discuss. Free speech becomes uh, simply another value among many values that are just preferences. I cannot fundamentally understand you as a woman. You cannot fundamentally understand me as a man and so forth with the races. Uh, What that means is that we cannot come to truths. We cannot see truths together simultaneously. We cannot discover them simultaneously together. 
And this cancels out the need for freedom of speech for the left. It means that uh, uh, freedom of speech is a mere preference. Uh, and therefore, if there's no truth to discover, that means that the world becomes and the university is a kind of microcosm of the world in this regard. It becomes just a, a kind of playground for you asserting your desires and preferences, me asserting mine, and whoever has the loudest voice or the biggest faction or the biggest crowd wins out. So let's let's unpack that for a minute. I think that's an extraordinarily interesting perspective that sort of describes the dogma, as you put it, or the mindset that they're bringing to the table. I, I, I think m most of us, definitely me included, are coming at this from a, a little bit different perspective, right? We, we see the news stories that are free speech being denied on campus. Um, for the most part, uh, conservative perspectives um, being silenced because they would um, – the, the majority of the student body or, or a loud portion of the student body disagrees. So, for instance – and this is a hypothetical, made-up story, but this is the flavor of the news stories that we see almost every week. You know, there's a, a pro-life speaker um, who is being protested by an, an anti-life group. Um, and uh, therefore, the university decides to revoke the invitation of the pro-life speaker uh, because they think there would be violence or uh, that's often an excuse that they think that there would be violence. But you're saying that they have this sort of ingrained fundamental misunderstanding of what it means to be academic and what it means to explore the world and to learn and to gain knowledge. Yeah, I think that's a nice summary. Uh, to to – sort of uh, – I took a big deep dive at first. So let's apply it to what you just said. Um, our disagreement between pro-life or pro-choice uh, is one that comes from you, a pro-lifer, being somehow deformed, somehow prejudicial. Uh, you are so prejudicial that you hold that opinion and you are so prejudicial that no amount of argumentation can get you out of that opinion. I have a fundamental commitment as a woman to abortion. That's an unyielding, uncompromising commitment that doesn't require any kind of discussion. You cannot convince me out of it. You cannot bring your uh, propaganda brigade to campus to convince me out of it. In fact, you trying to do that is a kind of assault on me. It's a denial of a right that I fundamentally deeply believe that I hold. And therefore, why should you be able to have a speaker on campus? Why? To propagandize me out of a commitment that is fundamental to my being? This is the kind of reasoning that takes place uh, on the left. Uh, that uh, uh, that uh, discussion itself is a kind of attack. That's where you get all of these doctrines about triggering, being triggered. Mm -hmm. That's where you get all of these uh, doctrines about the necessity of safe spaces. So let's break those things down for a second and think through what it means to be triggered and what a safe space is and mm -hmm. compare it to the original meaning of the university. Uh, to be triggered means to have a feeling. You have a feeling. And it is an antagonistic feeling. Uh, 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 you, are, you have been affronted or aggrieved by something that someone has done. Now, or, or said. Or said, exactly. Now, 
the question becomes this. Um, if I am triggered, do I need to think through why I've been triggered and think through whether I'm right or wrong to be triggered? The answer for those supporting the trigger doctrines is no. My feeling is the standard by which you and everybody else in the world should operate. In other words, if I have this bad feeling, the duty is upon you to withdraw whatever you say. Now, if you build that doctrine out, you see why it doesn't have only to do with uh, inviting a pro-life speaker or Charles Murray, but it has to do with great books too. Who's, who's to say that Shakespeare doesn't trigger me? Who's to say that the United States Constitution doesn't trigger me? If the standard of judgment becomes my internal feeling, which I do not need to defend rationally before you or before myself, everything can be undone. All things, the Constitution, the great books, the university itself. What if somebody is triggered by uh, liberty? What if there's a mass of individuals that are triggered by freedom? Does that mean that we should, according to them, get rid of it? Well, they're, they're definitely already triggered by free speech, yeah. which is liberty. That's a, a, one of the most important forms of liberty is free speech, and they're triggered by that. Right, right. So let's talk about safe spaces then because it ties in uh, to this understanding. Why do they want safe spaces? A safe space is a haven away from being triggered. Universities, uh, according to the students and according to some faculty that support them, say that we should have these safe spaces at every campus everywhere. Why have them? Well, um, it means that there should be uh, a protective cave on campuses that protects my feeling and my prejudice, therefore. And so that understanding is completely contrary to what a university should be. A safe space says this. I have come to this university and I am perfect. My feelings are perfect. My feelings are a perfect guide to judge all things, all knowledge, all truths, maybe even physics. Why not? Um, uh, and so I should be protected because I am already perfect in my judgment. The university says the opposite. The university says everybody comes here imperfect. We will build you up. We will teach you how to reason. We will teach you what genuine knowledge is. And so these safe spaces inside of the universities are the exact opposite of the spirit of what a university ought to be. And I think that these are very bad things. These teach students that their perfected feelings, according to themselves, are the standard by which one should judge all things. If you think that, and if you have a mass of students on campus who think that, that are powerful enough to agitate against the weak faculty and the weak administrators, there's no such thing as a university anymore. A university literally becomes a cave for prejudices, to protect and flatter prejudices. And we obviously talked about this in the context of universities, but, you know, obviously, eventually these students graduate and get out into the real world. So what would you say are some of the dangers of, you know, enabling safe spaces and, you know, trigger warnings um, once they get out? Is, is this a danger to society in the long term? Sure. Uh, I mean, uh, you know, we have counted for a very long time. Uh, or let's say we found some kind of stasis for a long time in this way, that mm -hmm. uh, the universities corrupt our students, yet um, they enter into the marketplace and the marketplace to some degree corrects them. In other words, they see that to survive, they need to get a job. Uh, 
to get a job. Some of them do. Some of them do, right. <laughs> Some of them wind up as part of the Antifa protest and don't get a job. Well, that's a good point. Uh, that's a good point because uh, – so if the market to some degree was a necessary corrective and a useful corrective to getting kids out of these fanatical positions and then marriage to and having children was also a kind of corrective to this fanaticism. Your point's good because what happens when there's a brand new ever-expanding infrastructure that serves not as a corrective but the opposite? that serves as a kind of new madrasa for indoctrination that puts all of their indoctrination into practice and creates more and more fanaticism. So like uh, expanded welfare state or a guaranteed basic income. Yes. Socialism. Yes. Any of that would yes. serve to further protect this generation of students who's, who's supposed to be coming out of the cave. That's exactly right. Uh, all of the programs that will uh, – uh, allow individuals who exit fanatical universities uh, to avoid genuine competition where value must be demonstrated, where idea, genuine ideals, ideas that are practicable must be demonstrated, skills must be had. The more you get rid of that, the more you continue this kind of fanaticism and create a class of professional fanatics. Now, I, I, I think you've nailed it. I, I think that um, all of the ways that they behave, and, and I think this applies to some faculty as well, students and faculty at the, at the universities, all of the ways that they behave, the, the trigger stuff, the safe space stuff, the denial of free speech, I think it all comes back to the dogma that you've identified. My question is, is this a school of thought that they've named that they are publicly championing or is it – or would they even recognize this about themselves? In other words, um, does, this, does this ideology have a name and are there people who defend it outright or is it more of a – they don't even know that um, this is the mindset that they're espousing? Yeah, that's a great question. It's, it's, it's hard and uh, long to answer. Um, part of it is that uh, I think that you know, every political movement uh, has uh, various individuals who perform various roles. And so the students are like the captains or the soldiers on the ground who have been given marching orders and who never doubt their orders. But then there are other individuals, the faculty, for instance, who propagate the ideas and assist the students in sort of going in, in this direction. But then if you take an even further step back, then you get to the level of ideas. There are a, a variety of intellectual sources for this kind of understanding. Uh, and I think that's what you're getting at. I mean, broadly, I would call this uh, modern liberalism. <laughs> um, now, um, Let's talk about the intellectual origins for a moment. Um, sure, uh, we talked earlier about the fact-value distinction. That comes from Max Weber, who, although he is no longer seriously studied and read in the universities, nevertheless, uh, his influence endures and underwrites all of this. There's also the influence of Marx, and I don't like to play this up because I think that conservatives speak way too much about communism. Uh, and the threat of communism, uh, I do not believe, is anywhere to be found or coming. On the other hand, Marx as a thinker himself had a great influence on all of this. Uh, uh, the kind of uh, hatred for any kind of inequality, the uh, arming of students for uh, 
with the spirit of revolution to destroy any kind of inequality. That comes from Marx. Uh, another source is uh, found in feminism. Our uh, former uh, visiting fellow Scott Jenner has done very good work on this. And uh, part of his thesis is that uh, feminism created the transgender movement, by which I mean this, that uh, you are not born uh, with a sex and gender that connects to one another permanently by nature. You can choose. You're free to choose your gender. And if you're free to choose something that seems so fundamental, you're born with a biology, you can see it. It guides your life. It guides your desires. If you can choose that, why can't you simultaneously choose a variety of other things too? Choice as a principle becomes a kind of open abyss into which you throw all of your desires and on, which, on the basis of which nobody can contradict you. And this is part of the source of this kind of fanaticism. Um, so there are a lot of, in other words, to answer your question, there are a lot of uh, cultural origins, uh, intellectual origins to all of these ideas that come together in the universities. Nobody really cites these thinkers. Few people still cite Marx. Few people still cite Weber. Few people really turn to Simone de Beauvoir as the originator of modern feminism. Uh, but their ideas still remain. And together intermixed in this kind of environment that, with, with its own psychology called the university, um, you create these, this new generation of individuals. Well, so follow-up question. Um, if they won't cite those individuals, in other words, are they a little bit ashamed that that – you know, because your average American high school student can identify Marx as, you know – defunct. His ideas are defunct. Um, so, so there's that question. Are they ashamed of these ideas? And, and if you, if you ask your average college kid um, right now, not your average college kid, your average sort of enlightened lefty college kid, do you support the First Amendment? Would they, do they think they're supporting it? Uh, okay. So two, you're asking two questions. <laughs> so, so first of all, are, are they ashamed? Um, no, I don't think so. I, I don't think it's a matter of shame. I think it's a matter of um, uh, great ambitions and great delusions. So here's an example. They're not ashamed if I said, look, you believe in history, uh, that, uh, you know, as, as Obama said, uh, the arc of history points this way or that way. Um, that's an idea from Hegel. Are you ashamed of Hegel? They'd probably say no. Of course, I'm not ashamed of Hegel or uh, they might not even know Hegel. Um, wh what it means is that they have appropriated certain ideas that suit them from certain thinkers and they just don't study them with any kind of seriousness. Here's an example of, of, of how you can unfold that contradiction. Uh, so you believe in history. Okay. Uh, oh. What is the force or the power behind history? What moves history, in other words? You ask this of, of your average lefty. What will the answer be? Very vague. I mean, I don't think that they've thought that through. But if there is – the philosophic point is that if there is a history, if you claim that there is one, then you must account for the force or the power of that history. And that force or power must be intelligible. It must be accessible to the human mind. And you must have a demonstration of how it does that and how it will continue to do that. That's required. But again, if you ask your average lefty, they'll say some kind of – it's not clear that they'll even have an answer for that. They believe in a history. 
But marching and protesting on the streets somehow facilitates that history. But also there must be some kind of universal movement that they can't account for. In other words, what I'm getting at is that it's this mishmash. It's incoherent. And what's used is what is suitable for their prejudices and for their ambitions. Well, this seems like a bit of a downer of a conversation on the state of college campuses right now. Would you say that there is any chance of that, of this current mindset shifting in the long term? Is there hope for that? Uh, Yeah, I think there is. Um, uh, But uh, it would require uh, conservatives to do certain things carefully and consciously and uh, hold fast to their plans, not just abandon them spasmatically or when the first uh, uh, rough area, rough patch comes up. So here are some examples. Um, First of all, uh, the reason that campuses have become uh, so unhinged is because presidents and faculty have no idea, have no understanding of what the purpose of a university is. That's why they can't defend it. They don't say that this is the place where uh, the mind comes to, uh, to come into its own, to develop. Uh, if they had that argument, then a lot of these movements could be um, um, argued out of existence. But they have no real courage. And they have no real courage because they have no real understanding. So better university presidents is, is one answer. Mm-hmm. Um, another answer is that um, Ivy League universities receive... Uh, funding in the hundreds of millions from the federal government. Those are federal tax dollars, hundreds of millions. I want my money back. You should. You should. And so should the American public. It's true that some portion of that money uh, goes into scientific research, uh, defense-related research. That's perfectly fine. What about the other money, though? How is it that uh, the universities are the hub of left-leaning thinking in America, the most secure place for that left-leaning faction to develop and grow and become bombastic, angry and powerful. And yet, they're being funded by federal tax dollars. This is an insanity. And I think that changes can be made on those grounds. University presidents, uh, they seem uh, very confident in themselves when you see them giving lectures, but they know the extent to which they depend on all of this federal funding. And uh, uh, cutting it off, cutting some portions of it off, is a very good thing. Uh, Simultaneously, there are other strategies. Um, State legislatures should fund universities with a purpose. In other words, they should give money for the foundation of new departments that will compete with these old departments. A lot of these departments, literature, now that we know, according to the left, that Shakespeare really has nothing to say. You know, he was really just a misogynist, et cetera, et cetera. He has nothing to say. Do you think that that has caused uh, enrollment in English departments, for example, to go up or down? Down. All enrollment is down in these places. Hmm. Students, I think, sensible students want a real education. And the founding of new departments that are serious can happen uh, through state legislative funding. This has been really, really interesting. Um, I think uh, I think we do have a real problem in the mindset on all of our universities. 
Um, there are, of course, uh, a lot of good things going on. Um, I heard about a project um, working out of, uh, of D.C. here at the Leadership Institute uh, called the Normandy Project, where there's conservative groups, I think including the Heritage Foundation, is participating in this, working to help send conservative speakers um, to these liberal campuses, uh, equipping conservative groups that invite them with best practices on, on how to get their conservative message um, into, into the students' hands. Of course, uh, that's going to be met, as many conservative speakers are, uh, with um, complication, if not outright cancellation by the administrations. But I think that that's a worthy project. Have you heard about that? I haven't, but I've heard of similar projects. And I think that this kind of thing is a very good one. Uh, to uh, the worst thing that can happen is for us to become crestfallen, to believe that uh, the universities are once and for all abandoned. Uh, they are just a kind of uh, mob rule uh, entity and that conservatives have no place in them. I think that uh, all of these controversies with Charles Murray or what happened at Berkeley with Ann Coulter, these things as they play back in the public do not make the universities look good. Nobody, nobody thinks, and this is precisely what should be happening, or maybe some I, – I should walk that back. Some people think so, but the majority of Americans do not. And when they think about sending their kids to universities, this is clearly a calculation. For example, <clears throat> after the uh, uh, events at the University of Mississippi or, – or is it Missouri? Missouri. Missouri, that's right. Their uh, uh, applications have fallen by 40 percent. I mean these controversies don't play out well in the public and I think that conservatives should continue just as vehemently, just as confidently to send conservative speakers there uh, to really reason – to really make their arguments felt on campuses. Uh, that's the only way this will go. Uh, otherwise, we'll just close up shop and abandon the universities once and for all and I think that that would be a terrible thing. Amen. Well, thanks for joining us. Really appreciate it. Um, your perspective is unique and different. It's it's not the same perspective that uh, that we hear when when we're when when we are bombarded with these terrible stories about what's happening on college campuses. We get the sort of um, you know really shocked reaction on the news, of course, but we don't get this academic look at at their mindset. So we really appreciate you being with us, Arthur. Uh, any last thoughts to add? Just one thing, that conservatives should feel confident. They should go to these campuses and argue their points. There are some ears that are open and willing to listen. And uh, those are the people upon whom you can build a faction against fanaticism. Excellent note to leave it on. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me. And thanks again to Arthur for that excellent conversation on free speech on campus. I'll definitely be thinking a lot about that in the coming school year. Um, if you're looking for more conservative policy solutions to current issues, make sure to sign up for Heritage's weekly newsletter, The Agenda. This goes out every Tuesday, and it will catch you up on the issues Heritage scholars are working on, explain conservative positions, and link you to our in-depth research and media interviews. The Agenda also provides information on how to watch important events happening here at Heritage online. So don't miss out. Sign up for The Agenda on Heritage.org today. The agenda's awesome. Check it out. The Morning Bell, another email product we offer, is awesome. Check it out. The Heritage Twitter feed, the Heritage Facebook, the Heritage Instagram, 
All of these uh, social media digital products will keep you informed. Whatever you're into, maybe you're into emails, maybe you'd rather just follow us on Twitter, wherever you like to get uh, your news or your perspectives, your hot takes, um, Heritage is there, and we want you to be a part of it. So please check it out. Uh, thanks for listening to Mass Ave. Uh, subscribe to us on iTunes so you hear when so you get a notification when we have a new episode. We'd love for you to subscribe and be listening every week. Check us out on Facebook at Mass Ave Podcast, um, and and also you know the the home base for all of this in a digital way is Heritage.org. So we'd love to visit uh, for you to visit us there. Um, Have a great week, everybody.